Hi, Pastor Ryan here. The message you're about to hear is a little unusual in that it's highly conversational in tone as an effort to show how one might respond in a real conversation with a real person who has real questions. In other words, it's meant to train and prepare us to go and share our faith with our neighbors in the workplace and in the real world. I hope it prepares you and encourages you. God bless. Well, a few weeks ago, I shared about an encounter uh, that provided the initial seeds for this sort of series we're doing right now called Answers Without Compromise. About six months ago in the Owen Roberts airport baggage claim, I was coming home from a trip and it was taking a while to process the baggage and get it through and all that stuff. And while, we, while waiting, I struck up a conversation with a gentleman and we were talking this and that, started to talk careers. So naturally, uh, the pastor gig eventually came up, from my end anyway. I asked him, what do you think about God? Where are you with God? He said, well, honestly, I don't have any interest in God, church, and religion, and I really never have. And as I paused, I decided to, to, to do something different, to ask something different, which I would continue to ask in the months following, and that's namely this. Okay, to take God out of it for a moment. What's the biggest obstacle in your life right now? And he was immediately ready with an answer. He said, honestly, it's my workplace. I feel stuck. On the one hand, I have coworkers and friends who are really nice, humble, even the fun sort. But they get trampled on. Even often seem down on themselves, uh, hard on themselves. And I don't want that. On the other hand, my bosses are pretty successful and they exude confidence. But they're royal jerks. All right, so he didn't use the word jerks, right? Uh, he used a more flavorful word, which, you know, it's his church, so I can't say it. But I don't want that either. So I, I guess I'm asking, you know, is there a way I can kind of have both? So I just sort of rephrased the question back to him. I said, well, basically you're wondering how you can be both confident and humble at the same time. So this morning is still another way to kind of put this question, is how can I be both supremely confident without the ego, yet humble without the eor? Because the, the, the part about the big ego is pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, ego, a big ego is repulsive enough, doesn't require a lot of explanation. I think of a big ego like one of those giant Thanksgiving Day parade balloons, you know what I'm talking about? That it's impressive, admirable on TV, or even from a distance if you've ever been to one of these parades. But the closer it gets, the scarier it becomes, and the more you wish it would just kind of go away. Uh, they're just frightening things. <laughs> and, and that's what a big ego is like when you encounter You don't want that. They're like, oh, that's, that's kind of neat. That person's confident. Oh my gosh, please kill me if I ever become like that, right? But the Eeyore part's a little different. Who here finds Eeyore likable? Raise your hand. If you find Eeyore likable, okay. Most people find Eeyore likable. The reason that we like him, I would propose, is that he makes us feel better about ourselves. Right? No matter how low you go, Eeyore is still lower. Right? And, and so, you know, that's kind of why you like But no one wants to be like Eeyore. Right? We like him, don't want to be like him. So... Don't want a hot air balloon-sized ego thinking you were something to behold when people would just rather you pass by them. 
but neither do you want to be a likable loser. If I had to do it all over again in this conversation now with this gentleman, I probably would at this point ask him, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to that tension between being confident and being humble? And my educated guess is that most would say they do their best to be both at different times, depending on what the situation calls for. So for instance, workplace humility uh, may come in the form of being kind of easygoing, very affable, maybe in some cases, depending on your personality, you're quiet, thoughtful, among colleagues, maybe even among subordinates, but assertively looking out for number one when the brass comes knocking. You might be a self-starter, ambitious, and contributing and promoting your child's best interests and their achievements, but you cool off with that stuff. You're a bit more relatable when you get around other moms, right, if you're a mom. You're, you're, you know, a little more slow to highlight your child, thoughtful. Maybe you're one person in one setting, a different person maybe at home. In any atmosphere, environment, any set of relationships that demands excellence, it has even the potential to breed sort of competition, you'll find people trying to live a double life. I think we try to reconcile social acceptability right, with personal progress. But it's a struggle. And there's two flaws, though, with the double life. The first is ultimately leads to a miserable existence. I mean, think of it. Do you know anyone who is ultimately happy living a double life? Even if they have, I mean, the Ritz kind of experience in both lives. Lance Armstrong, Tiger Woods, right? Pick your political figure. Just choose one, <laughs> you know? All right? I mean, it's ultimately, you see it in these people. It's miserable, and the other flaw is that duplicitousness, living a double life, always comes to life. Always shows itself for what it is, eventually. A wise person once said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it can't. Do you remember that book, The Scarlet Letter? Remember this book? Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, about a lady, adulterous lady, you know, basically gets a giant red A on her for the rest of her life for what she does. Remember this? All right, it's a really famous, one of the kind of great novels of the last few hundred years. Uh, now, if you remember, there are three big characters in the story. you got this doctor fellow who she's secretly married to, and he asks her, though, to keep her marriage to him a secret once you know, she gets pregnant so he can continue to save face, be a caregiver to the community, and also you know, go after this deviant behavior kind of publicly. And you have this other male perp who is this um, sympathetic minister. Uh, he's beloved by his congregation, but secretly, he's the baby daddy. All right? Both men in this story are killed essentially by their own misery and living a double life. And both reveal the truth in the bitter end, in their bitter end. The only person who is spared is the woman, Hester, because she can't hide her guilt, right, due to a large stomach, right, morning sickness, and the giant A that's on her, you know, shirt for the rest of her life. But in a weird way, the, the double life is mercifully stripped from her. 
the misery of it was, would have been much worse as it killed these two men. Now, this might seem like an extreme example of responding with a double life in our workplaces where we live and this sort of thing. But Hawthorne, he was so obsessed, the author was so obsessed with the harmful effects of a double life because for a couple of years he lived one, a seemingly harmless one, even while engaged to be married. See, he joined, just for a couple of years, this utopian transcendental community. If you're wondering what that is, uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of philosophical moorings and all that. Basically, it's an old-timey version of a hippie commune. All right, that's basically what this thing was. I've read more about it, the more I can. This is a hippie commune, you know, for like the 19th century. All right, and so he joined it. He joined this commune because all the great authors of his day were doing it and because it saved him money for his wedding. But he didn't believe at all in its cause or its virtue in the slightest. In fact, his second most famous novel, pretty much goes out of its way to mock and to satirize this community. Yet there he was. There he was. Kissing up to the leaders, right? Climbing up the professional ladder, all the while reminding his friends and letters and to his fiancée as well, I don't really believe in this stuff. I wanted to share this example because I wanted you to see that this is not a new but a timeless problem that people have seemed harmless, but this double life caused enough misery for Hawthorne in this very short period of time that he wondered, what would it look like if someone lived this way, teased out over their lives, their whole lives? Hawthorne obsessed over the problem, but he never found a solution, which he may have found had he spent some significant time with a real, genuine Christian. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to share with you, friends, why I think being a genuine, real Christian can allow you to have your cake and eat it too. To be both confident and humble without being in the least bit duplicitous, living a double life. So that's my hope this morning. And if you look at any compiled list of history's most influential people, all right, whether it's like the BBC, the History Channel, Time Magazine, you will find on there a Christian named Paul of Tarsus, and always in the top ten, history's most influential people, a Christian. In some cases, he's listed above even Jesus Christ himself, because especially some non-religious historians credit Paul with the spread of Christianity throughout the known world in the first century. He was the one who disseminated. He took the message everywhere. Unlike others on such a list as this one, Paul was keenly aware of his history-changing influence. Paul had game, and he knew it. Is that cocky? I mean, is Paul then any different from one of those bosses, the dude at the baggage claim mentioned? Right, inflatable ego with no room for relatability? I want to invite you to hear how Paul a real Christian viewed himself, how he viewed his influence, how he viewed the job he says that God assigned him to spread everywhere he went the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's do that together this morning. If you would, we got some Bibles for you. Open to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. 
Paul, a real Christian who happened to write the majority of the New Testament, how he views himself. He says, look, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. The apostles were basically Jesus' closest friends who lived with him, who walked with him, who learned from him, who told others about him on his behalf when he lived on the earth. So I'm the least of these people, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me wasn't in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Okay. Now the first takeaway you might get here is that Paul seems to be trying to do the double life thing here also. Right On the one hand, humble, I'm the least. On the other hand, the best. But if you look a little deeper, my hope is that we'll see what makes Paul different. A different kind of response. We'll see that in a minute. But first I want you to see that there was a time where this Christian guy, Paul, didn't like Christians. He didn't like them. That's kind of an understatement. right? Because it says here, I persecuted, I, Paul, persecuted the church of God in verse 9. So I want to ask you why you might not like Christians. What sticks out to you about Christians? There are two reasons I think a lot of people don't like Christians when it boils down to it. And that is, number one, people often say Christians are annoying. All right? <laughs> Which, now some of that's just personality. All right? You know, the person, we can't just blame them on being a Christian. But annoying. They act like they have something you don't. But they also seem kind of kind and thoughtful, you know, what they say and what they do. We just find that kind of annoying. There's another response that Christians are kind of self-righteous, fair as well. Uh, act like they have something you don't, and constantly reminding you of it. <laughs> that not so subtly reminding you, uh, yes, you are different than me. All right, and, and that's a problem because these two can seem similar and are often lumped in the same category because both may initially bother you. Let me explain. First of all, the self-righteous person, the problem there is they've kind of forgotten what makes them righteous, and specifically who makes them righteous. My oldest son wonders why the world's transportation system doesn't yet include the jetpack. Right, he would like the jetpack to be included. Right? And so because he, he's very interested in math and science, uh, I'm encouraging him to develop, aim high, man, develop the first common-use jetpack. Now, in part, I'm encouraging this, but so Dad no longer has to pay third-party car insurance premiums. <laughs> so, but anyway, so selfish motivations, but that's not so much to ask. So we're talking about this on Wednesday in our yard and how great he says it'll be to, to fly everywhere with his jetpack while other people are still, you know, using their mom-mobiles and driving their Priuses and whatnot. He said, Dad, you know, I would get so good, I'd become the most powerful person in Cayman. I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, he would be pretty powerful, I have to admit, if that did happen. At this point, our youngest Gage steps in and he says, you know, I'm not so sure 
that if I had one of those, I got really good, I did it all the time, I'm kind of worried that I'd say, hey, look at me, I'm so good. I bet I can even fly now without the jetpack. Then I jump off a roof and splat. Like, yeah, that could happen. I guess I see what you're saying. Like, I'm pretty good at this. The self-righteous religious person is someone who has forgotten the power that fueled them to fly so high. They've forgotten it. Live on their own strength. The results are splat. They live a dead sort of life and cause death all around them. A brilliant man who basically basically invented what would become calculus, Blaise Pascal once said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who love Neil Diamond and those who... No, not really. <laughs> That's really... No, there, there are two... It's terrible. There are two kinds of people in the world. Sinners who think themselves righteous. Sinners who think themselves righteous and righteous who think of themselves as sinners. And genuine Christians are the latter. Even though at first they can seem annoying. Right, such a person's confidence is there, but it's different because it's mixed in with asking how you're doing. They'll even own up to mistakes pretty quickly. But sometimes we look at that and we say, well, that seems fake. Right, that seems kind of false. Is that real? And honestly, you just kind of don't want to be around that. And I think we don't want to be around that because of similar reasons that Paul didn't want to be around Christians. I think he had this kind of experience, a little bit, but he one day realized that Christians were not the cause of his annoyance or his opposition, but Jesus Christ was. Jesus himself was. Jesus Christ reveals himself to Paul. And the first thing he says to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you opposing me? You can read about this in Acts chapter 9. Paul, see, thought he was opposing Christians, but really, he was opposing Christ. So if you're wondering, if you're here this morning, you're wondering, what kind of bothers me about Christians? I would encourage you to start with Christ himself. There's something about Jesus. He, he was confident to the point of speaking with unheard of authority yet humble to the point where he didn't even consider himself on the same level with his heavenly Father. Not even on the same level. Even though he's God and claims to be God, I'm not on this level. Is this real? Is this genuine? It kind of seems a little false. I think people are bothered by this because deep inside, there's something in us. We know that we should be this, but we're not. It feels so right, confident humility, but we're not that. Jesus imparts this humble confidence to his followers because he imparts his very life to them. Let's read about this a little bit more with the Apostle Paul. In these verses, if you look at these verses, we'll see that on the one extreme, you see Paul humble, and the other extreme, you see Paul confident. Right? He's humble in that, and he just says this very directly. But he also gives a little disarming, joking kind of way of saying it. First of all, he says he's the least of the apostles. And he genuinely believes this. Not even worthy to be called by that name, apostle. He genuinely believes he's number 13 out of number 13. But he also 
calls himself one untimely board. That's kind of a weird phrase, right? Untimely board. It's actually self-deprecating humor. If you have a different Bible, it might be translated, I'm like one abnormally born. I actually think that's a better translation here. It literally refers to a premature birth, an abortion, a stillbirth, or a miscarriage. See, some church members in Corinth gave Paul a really hard time. They said, hey, dude, you are not like the other great apostles, you know, like a Peter, a John, a James, a Matthew. These guys are the real deal. Paul was kind of short, we think, and kind of funny looking, you know. And so Paul plays to that by laughing at himself with what seems to be to be a poor attempt at humor, self-deprecating humor. I mean, usually premature birth is not funny, but I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that it played well in that culture, and at least he tried. He's also supremely confident. I am the hardest working of all these apostles. You think they heard that? Of course they did. That got back to them. So Paul thinks he's the hardest working. Jeez. Now, is he just overcorrecting here for what he said earlier? Kind of compensating? Maybe playing to a different crowd? Maybe to the people who already like him, he's showing himself to be, but I'm also humble. But to people who doubt him, saying, hey, I'm ranking myself number one. You need to know that. He can say he is both the least nothing and the most something because of a power that is unique to Christianity among all world religions and life philosophy. And this power is something called grace. There's no other religion in the world that talks about this concept and knows this concept. Only in Christianity. Three times in verse 10, he talks about this concept known as grace. Now, grace... I would define as this. It's basically God's love made active through an undeserved gift. A lot of people view God as staying up on his high throne while we here on earth struggle. Right? God's up there. You know, occasionally he'll, he'll remind us he's up there. He'll get out his megaphone and make proclamations. Right? Like, have your attention please. Just a reminder. I love you. Church starts at 10. Make sure you're there. Right? I mean... That's what we think about God. Like he's just sort, of, he's sort of out there. It doesn't really make any difference in our lives. But it all starts with God's passionate love. Yes, and he says it, but he proves it with more than words. He does something about it. So when Paul says, though I am nothing, I am something because of the grace of God, he's referring to God taking this love and doing something about it. In fact, he just described it in verses earlier than what we read. So if you still have that Bible open, look with me a few verses earlier, starting in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, look, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. On to verse 3. Here's the first importance of the gospel. Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with what the Bible says. Then he appeared to Peter, named Cephas, Then he appeared to the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's a nice way of saying died. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and then to me. The good news is that God came to the earth. He made his love active to die a death we deserved, And in doing so, he shows that he had the power to forgive the rebellion in our heart and give us life forever by himself physically dying and then defeating death. 
He's risen from the dead. A dead man comes alive. Then ascends into heaven. Shows that he's God. And Paul recognized he's the least deserving of this. He's even a, he's even a tad freakish. He says, but God activates his love anyway into Paul's life. He gives Paul life. And with it, confidence. Complete confidence that God is on his side now. Previously he wasn't. Now he is. Not by anything Paul's done, just because God wants to. Because he loves. And he makes that love active. Now the second time we see grace mentioned, he says this grace towards me was not in vain. A lot of people think forgiveness is this sort of this sort of trinket, you know, a sort of trinket that's often wasted on a spoiled child who's just going to squander it, who's just going to waste it. But friends, grace is not some sappy sentimentalism as if God is coming out to you and saying, hey, here's a box of candy and a card. Would you be my valentine? There you go. Uh, no, no, that was not, that was not... I was not. Stick with the message, people. I really didn't do it for that. She's just the closest, all right? It happens to be my wife. I love her. But he's not doing that. He's not just giving you a card of Valentine. You come away with some warm fuzzies like we all just had, all right? It's action. Grace has the power to change people. If someone really trusts, that Jesus alone makes them good by his grace, it will change them. That's the cool part. Just as it changed Paul. The third time we see grace mentioned here, he says, I worked harder. I worked harder than all of them, right? Yet, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. There are two ways operating by grace makes a difference. And we see one of them right there. I didn't work at this. I didn't keep going. I didn't keep persevering. Keep working hard to the sunlight hours. It wasn't me who was doing it. It was God's power, His love activated in my life. So one way grace makes a difference is you keep on working. You keep on producing in your life without giving up and without screwing up because you recognize you're weak. You're utterly capable of screwing up at any moment. So you keep asking Jesus for help. Jesus, help me. Make your love active. Help me. And the same power, the Bible says, that raised Jesus from the dead, it's the same power he gives you to keep on living, working, producing for him. So that's one way grace makes a difference. The other way is if you don't do that, that you do screw up and you do give up, but you run, you walk, in some cases you drag yourself back to Jesus who forgives you forgives you again and again. He shows grace to you again and again. And when someone does that, and it's the God of the universe, it makes you want to serve them more. It makes you want to love them more. You see that? So it's about Jesus when you succeed and you persevere and you keep on working. But it's also about Jesus when you fail to persevere and you screw up and you fall down. Either way, you can have complete confidence that someone outside yourself, the God of the universe, is on your side. And it's always about him and him who does it. So, in summary, a real Christian views himself or herself as more weak, 
and rebellious than they ever dared to previously imagine, but more loved than they ever dared hope. I want you to hear that. You have to admit that you're more weak, you're more rebellious than you ever wanted to think, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And that's the secret right there. This, in this is born genuine, humble confidence. I want to close by sharing with you just three quick examples of this in current day life which means I get to talk about one of my heroes, my father, my dad. Uh, my dad's a business executive with a gift for leadership and administration who puts people in right places to succeed, whether that's in his, uh, his furniture factory, uh, directing his family. He directed us all the time. That's how you wash a car. Nope, not that way. <laughs> a little bitterness there too. But he put us in the right place to succeed. I mean, the guy, I've seen him boldly direct Marriott housekeeping. Right, with wise instruction for them to succeed in life. All right? Um, and they like it. He's just got that way about him. When he was younger, he was a basketball player at university. And they used to have this phrase for him. They would say, his nickname was Skeeter, and they would say, Skinny Skeeter is our leader. Which you can imagine. Now, he is no longer skinny, but he is a leader. As much for his confidence as for his equal directness in admitting sin, admitting weakness in his life. This is a man who has taken me aside to freely admit, you know, I've accepted my most lucrative job, Ryan, uh, with entirely selfish motivations. I've been too hasty and self-reliant deciding when to move our family. I messed up, man. Directly. He can do this freely and directly because he knows it's not up to him. When he succeeded and he used his gifts, it was because of Jesus. When he's messed up, Jesus makes him good again. Confidence. Or think, think, for example, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson, who founded Alcoholics Anonymous in 1935. After a profound experience of crying out to God on a hospital bed for help with this disease, crying out to God, and he believed God through Jesus Christ, answered him and helped him and offered to rescue him. After this, he had this dream. He had this vision of a group of alcoholics gathering together to administering healing to one another. But in humility, as he founded Alcoholics Anonymous, he took no contributions from the members of the group, no financial contributions. Uh, And after AA kind of got huge and big, he refused things, like a Yale honorary degree, he refused to be even, have his picture taken for Time magazine, even with his back turned to the camera. He said, I don't want that. Just don't want it. Humble, yet at the same time, boldly and confidently insisted, even in the face of opposition, that the steps to recovery include acknowledging and relying upon a personal God. Got to have it. One more example. The people sitting near you. There are people sitting near you right now who have a certain confidence to their life. A number of these people, they're not afraid to admit they're good at things and they've experienced success. Likewise, like my dad, unafraid to admit failure and weakness. They do this because they've been rescued by grace, transformed by grace, and are productive because of grace. I want you to encourage you, don't be afraid to get around these kind of people. It might be annoying at first, but understand that's just because you, you are recognizing that you are created for the same humble confidence, but just aren't there yet. And it annoys you. You want to be there. And you can be. 
you can view yourself differently from this day forward. And so I want to encourage you, in the silence of your own heart, just to respond to these questions. Are you willing to come clean and to be honest about yourself? That you're trying to live a double life, but it's not working. There's some of you who are trying to live a double life and it's not working. I want to encourage you just to lay down that pride that wants to appear appealing to all people. Are you willing to trust that Jesus Christ physically died and defeated death to rescue you from this dying sort of life and transform you by his grace to live a productive life? If you are willing, pray with me. Jesus, I know that I've spent a good chunk of my life just trying to be two different people. You know, friendly, affable on the one hand, but also looking out for number one, you know, trying to be productive, trying to be ambitious. Father, I pray that there's some in this room who would just admit that before you. We've tried that and it doesn't work. And we'd find the solution in knowing Jesus Christ, having a relationship with him. Jesus Christ alone can give us the grace, the activated power to live productively, to be transformed, to be different, and yet will also be there to forgive us when we fail to do that. And so we can be one of these people who just says, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm messed up just like you. And that's okay. That's okay. Because it's Jesus Christ who makes me good. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.